0: This is the story of two botched murder attempts by hired hitmen, and what happened when 65-year-old Joyce Sturdivant took matters into her own hands. I'm Robert Riggs, here with a true crime reporter, Confidential. This case of murder languished as a cold case for two years until my co-host, former U.S. prosecutor Bill Johnston, launched an investigation. One of the most common forms of homicide is when one half of a couple kills the other. Women are usually the victims of this form of homicide. Only 1% of male victims are killed by a partner. On October 28, 2008, 65-year-old Joyce Sturdivant called 911. She claimed to have found her husband in a pool of blood in the bed where he slept. 68-year-old Joe Sturdivan, a brawny, bullish man, a champion stock car racer in Texas, had been shot at close range in his head and back. Police suspected that Joyce did it, but the local district attorney then in Waco, Texas, didn't think there was enough evidence to prove his case. So, Joyce Sturdivan had gotten away with murder until Bill Johnston received a phone call. Bill, who was on the other end of that phone call? Well, it was the son of this woman, Joyce
1: Sturtevant. And it's a strange thing to hear, even at our office back in that time, but it was the, the words, I think my mother killed my father, was what essentially was stated on the phone call. And I'd like to come see you. And I said that, of course, the reason that <clears throat> the person called was be uh, was because that the in those oh, in that time frame there had been a cover story for Texas Monthly magazine, and it had a picture of a man uh, holding some beads and a cross, and it said, "Did this Baptist preacher murder his wife?" Well, that was a Texas Monthly magazine story of something we've covered in the podcast, which is the Baptist preacher that murdered his wife. And that story got a lot of publicity uh, in Texas and in the area, and there was a book written about it as well. And this fellow that called had read the book, and he knew that that sometimes we looked into cold cases. And so he told me what he thought happened, why he thought it happened that way. And he was... uh he was in the ballpark. I mean, in other words, he had some some facts and some suspicions. But I, of course, told him, "Wow, you know that's quite an allegation." And based on what you're telling me, this is going to be a big project that we need to start work on because it's going to take a lot more than that.
0: So, did he believe that she had done it herself, or because what we would later learn is that twice she had hired hitmen and they were unsuccessful. She had, yeah, and we'll tell why in a little bit. But
1: yeah, she was uh, quite determined to kill her husband, who who was the uh, reason she had any money at all, and the reason she had her lifestyle
0: was him, the husband. And they had a transmission repair business in Robinson, Texas, just south of Waco. They had one in Waco. In
1: Waco, yes. And they had, yeah, they had, they had probably the oldest transmission repair shop in the area. Were very well known. This Mr. Sturdivant was a tough character. Uh, he would fight anybody. He was a he was, I would imagine, raised in the forties, and uh, was what they would call a tough. He would fight. He would carry on. But he was a very successful businessman, had been for years, and uh, his wife Joyce uh, just to, for reasons we'll talk about was ready to get rid of him, and had tried and. Just had had no luck. (laughs) She was the least successful murder-for-hire candidate uh, that we'd ever seen. And so with a little bit of information, I got a couple of investigators, retired investigators, federal marshals and so forth, that agreed to work on it with me, uh, the same ones that had worked on the case involving
0: uh, the Baptist preacher. So off we went. Well, before he came in, back in the summer of 2007, she had approached this longtime family friend named Ali Abdullah Muhammad, known as Doc Muhammad, about killing her husband. And told him she would pay off his delinquent tax bill. He hadn't paid his taxes. So he then enlisted a guy named Joe Chapman who was his next-door neighbor—this is quite a collection of characters here— to knock, quote, knock Big Joe out. And so she left the door unlocked to their home. He goes in with a gun to take care of business. And Big Joe, who you said is a tough guy, wakes up, and a fight erupts. And Big Joe is whipping him. and Whips him, and the
1: the guy flees, barely maintaining his life.
0: But when Chapman is running out of the house— he sees Joy Sturdervant, the wife, in the bathroom and with her, her hands over her ears because she's waiting for the gunfire that never came. She was waiting on the pop. That's right.
1: And it never happened. And what a disappointment for Joy's poor thing. She was... Thought she'd hired just the right people. She hired a couple of amateurs, obviously, and it didn't work out for her.
0: So then she makes a second go round. Uh, a year later, there is a woman named uh, Deborah Dietrich that worked for a parts company that delivered transmission parts t- to Big Joe's business. They would be in there talking, uh, complaining about their husbands to each other. Sturdivant said, Joyce says, uh, you know, we just need to kill them. And... The woman thinks she's joking, and she says, no, I'm serious. Do you know anybody that could do the job? She then finds two guys, and the deal is, is Joyce Sturdivant is going to give them jewelry in exchange for killing her husband, gives them the jewelry. They take off with the jewelry and don't kill him. So apparently, uh, not long after that, in the fall of 2008, she decides to do it herself. She did, and those stories about the attempts
1: were crazy. In other words, it was so unbelievable that someone would try to do that and have the nerve to try again and have the nerve to try yet again. But that was Joy Sturdivant. It turned out that uh, while she worked in the business, she didn't really do anything, but she had access to the billing and the the finances. She was the one who made the deposits. So over a period of time, she began – doing her own uh, cash withdrawal from the books from the uh, embezzling. Receipts. She's embezzling. She, she was money. embezzling. And she probably felt like to some degree that was her right. She co-owned the business with her husband, but it got a little out of hand. And what she was doing with the money to a large degree, she was using drugs. She was, she was hooked on pills and, and she got to the point where she was having to get street pills. She couldn't get prescriptions. And so she had a habit and if you looked at her, you think she was a little old grandmother, nice person. Oh, she's still wonderful. You know, baked cookies, but no, she wasn't. She was, she was uh, hooked on drugs, and she was sick of her husband uh, having to sneak around to get money from him. And at some point, he began realizing this isn't adding up. You know, we were supposed to make ten thousand dollars last month, and we made three. And he begins questioning her, and he gets to the point where he is, he's. I would say, onto her. We don't know how much they confronted one another about it, but we do know he beget, he was onto her, and her drug supplier became known who that likely was. So we started narrowing, narrowing the motive. In other words, a lot of women want to kill their husbands but don't do it. She had a reason because she was getting ready to get cut off from the money she needed to get drugs and to have her fun. The was, party was coming to an end.
0: Well, when she solicited the first two hit men, the family friend, she claimed that she was a victim of domestic violence and played on their sympathy. Right. And and that was all a bunch of baloney. I'm sure it wasn't a great relationship. Either way, she
1: probably, if one of them whipped on the other, I would put Joyce right up there with having done the whipping because she was a mean character. But it really boiled down to she wanted money. She wanted to be able to do whatever she wanted to with her money. And she was stealing right out of the receipts of the business. And, okay, that may be between them, but when he got
0: wise to it, she thought the most logical way to handle this is just kill the guy. That's what she sought to do. So how does this come undone, and why isn't the prosecutor pursuing a case? It happened in a small town. This was a second
1: case we'd had just in a couple of years where some patient digging And sewing together different pieces of fabric came to a pretty good conclusion of what happened. You had, in both these cases, that is the Baptist preacher case and this one, you had it happen in a small town with a police department with very limited resources. In other words, they were not going to be the best homicide guys around because they didn't work very many homicides. Homicides are a lot of work. The crime scene itself is very difficult to preserve properly. You have to know what you're doing. So both of those were not. DA wasn't interested, and the police department didn't get very far because they were small-town police. They may not have done the best job, and the district attorney knew that and was skeptical, to
0: say the least, skeptical. All right, let's pause for a break. We'll be back and pick up how you get involved. We were discussing how the uh, police department was small town. They didn't have the resources of a big city department for homicides. The son of the killer comes to you and says, I think mama did it. What's your next step? Well, in the Baptist preacher case,
1: we had had some luck in that I. <sighs> There was no criminal investigation underway in the Baptist Preacher case. This is the Baptist Preacher who murdered his wife, who's it's one of our podcasts. And so there was no way to find much out. There was no subpoena power or anything. So I sued him. I sued him for a wrongful death. That gave me the chance. Sue Joyce? Well, Well, or. I'm going back to the Matt Baker case. Oh, okay. The Baptist Preacher case. In the Baptist Preacher case, I sued him on behalf of the victim's mother. And that allowed me to have subpoena power to get documents, and it also allowed me to try to take depositions—just do a civil, civil version of a criminal investigation. We've done that several times, and it's—it's hard to do, but it can be done. So, in the Sturdivant case, the one we're talking about now, I didn't know if a wrongful death case was merited yet, but because we were so thin on evidence, but there was an estate case. In other words. Mr. Sturman had money, there was a probate of that, and there, was, there were funds to be distributed and there, was, there were uh, other financial issues. And so we interceded in that to try to keep this, the certain monies from being distributed because we thought she was guilty of wrongdoing. And if you're guilty of wrongdoing, the law says you can't take in a, a will or mm-hmm. otherwise, because you, if you killed the person, you can't take the money. So it had to do with that. And so, again, it gave us process. It gave us the civil procedure available to us, which was subpoenas and depositions. And I keep going back to the Baptist preacher case. He made a big mistake. He let me take his deposition. Joyce Sturdivant, none the wiser from that whole case and the publicity of it, does the same thing. Her lawyer was convinced she was not only innocent, but she was a victim of this Son, He was, all he wanted was money. So her lawyer thought it was a, basically a joke. And he said to me before court on one occasion, Bill, you've got to be kidding. You, you really come up with some doozies. And, and uh, if she killed him, I'll eat my hat, which is an old expression, you know, 100-year-old expression. Did he think my she,
0: hat. She, she, she's 65 or, even, right. well, by that time she's older, did he think she was just a granny? Sure. And, and there were so many people that she'd convinced
1: the lawyer so many people that wanted Joe dead. And so she had told these tales to the lawyer. The lawyer believed it and thought, poor Joyce and poor this Johnston fellow. Is just, just at it again. Here he goes. And so I told him, let's see, you know, we'll see who eats the hat here. And so, again, astonishingly, she, the lawyer let me take Joyce's deposition. And so I asked her, in essence, what happened? And I what happened that morning, what happened that afternoon, what happened that night and everything she would, every sentence she would utter, I would, was listening and I would follow up on it. And her story about their dogs and the condition of the house and doors being locked, all of these things began to twist. She couldn't keep her story straight. And she finally, you could almost see the wheels turning. Here's what she thinks happened she and joe her dear beloved husband were at the grocery store and these well i don't know if she called them african americans because she was extremely racist but she referred to these these people in the store and how they accosted her husband and how they they used racial slurs and they and i said these are strangers oh yes And she told this crazy story to make it look like African-Americans in the central Texas area didn't like her husband. Well, they probably didn't like her because she was such a racist. Uh, She absolutely was. But so she was going to (laughs) blame unnamed and unknown African-Americans who she fabricated in a story, which was not backed up by any other witness, in a grocery store. So that must be who killed old Joe. Poor Joe. They broke into her house, and she was asleep, and they
0: came in and must have killed him. But they had all these dogs they had, that would have surely have woke Joe up. She couldn't explain that too well.
1: The dogs were called, she called them skipper keys, and there's something like that. are little. She said the meanest dogs ever created, you couldn't get within a foot of someone without them biting you, and they bit you, they wouldn't let go. And I tried, so she was proud of that. So we had to work through that, Joyce. <laughs> so if that's the case, you know, show me the blood from the dog bites on this, these African-Americans who came in. And everything, every aspect of her story either unraveled or took a turn that was so unrealistic that you went down a blind alley. And her deposition helped, con- helped later when we referred the case criminal convict Because she told, just like the preacher, she told an unrealistic story that was made to be a lie by forensic evidence, including, in Joyce Sturdivant's case, the crime scene evidence of what she said the place was ransacked and so forth. It wasn't. It wasn't. The police had pictures. It wasn't ransacked. And at any rate, her downfall was she allowed a very lengthy deposition. She believed she could convince me of all of these facts, which were completely inconsistent with one another, unrealistic, and so forth. So it unwound when she talked, gave a long story. We presented it again to the DA's office with the help of the investigators
0: there, and and they went after her. So, I mean, it's apparent, and I've seen this when I'm interviewing people, and, you know, you can smell the contrived story. Could you see anything in her body language, too, at the time? Was it telling you, eh, she, she's lying? She has sort of a... Feigned confidence. She would look
1: down at you a little bit as she and when the tail got taller, mm-hmm. she would raise her head a bit and look down at you as if certainly he'll believe this. <laughs> and if I didn't, she would go to the next one. But she she had a little bit of body language with it, but mostly she was haughty. She was arrogant and expected everyone just to believe her. That had been, her life had been such a series of shadows in the years leading up to that. That she was used to just lying her way through everything. And I thought, and my belief is, she thought that was going to get her out of this. She'd just lie her way through it, blame it on some poor and suspecting souls that they'd met at the grocery store, and we'd leave her alone. Of course, we did not.
0: Well, and then she took the stand in her murder trial for two hours. Was this the same attorney that allowed you to take a deposition? It was a different lawyer, but the same mentality. And again, when someone's
1: not a very good liar, and they've already told one series of stories. It's probably not a good idea to have them on the stand in front of the jury, but they did anyway. And so they had my deposition to work with and her new testimony, and it was just a cobweb of junk that she told. And it was completely unbelievable and offended the jury.
0: Well, when she was first arrested, her attorney came in and and claimed the jail was not the place for her. She needed to be in the hospital, that she needed a wheelchair. But then her friends came in and testified, we've never seen her in a wheelchair in her life. She was just a phony. She was a phony, and and she was a killer. You know, the truth
1: was, she murdered him in cold blood. She most likely shot him while he was asleep. What more cowardly act can you do? And having tried two or three times before, she just you know, was mean as a snake and said, I'll take care of this and just killed him, and had no problem lying about it, no problem taking money
0: behind it, and no problem hopping up in front of a jury and just telling the story. Well, and as I recall, the forensics indicated that the gun had been fired very close to his head. Uh, You had the gunpowder stains from it, that it was really an up-close-and-personal killing. Did you find out what weapon she used or how that had come about?
1: I believe they they did enough ballistics to determine it was a firearm that they had Mm -hmm. access to. Her problem always was she had an excuse for everything, but the excuses never lined up, including the firearm, availability of the firearm and ammunition, which they had available to them. And again, it's like you said, she, can you imagine? She, um, this person who had uh, provided for her all these years, she point blank murdered him, shot him once, and
0: thought she better shoot him again, and so she did. I um, am surprised that there are two attempted, you know, hitman deals, and nobody had snitched off even before that murder. They came in, one of them came in after the murder. Oh, and by the way, today, he says, his his poor life has been ruined by, <laughs> by this. That well. people think he mur- did the murder, and, you know. It was the crowd she was running in. So,
1: you know, if you're looking for a killer, even if they're not a very good killer, but someone that will try, go to your drug sources or someone else who's hooked on drugs. It was the crowd she was running in, and it was a crowd that would take chances and do things like this or try to do them, uh, but she never could find someone competent enough to do the job,
0: and that's why she did it herself. I take it. Part of the motive was the life insurance. He had a big life insurance policy. It was like $92,000 or somewhere in that neighborhood. She had the life insurance and she had the business. And the business. The business alone was worth a great deal of money. It was a
1: very going concern. It was, there were many hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake. And uh, she perhaps lied her way, you know, over these months to try to hang on to this estate. But she just couldn't
0: do it. Interestingly, you know, she's doing time in the prison for two sentences uh one is for hiring the hitman that that was attempted but she's doing time but like in 2019 the city of Waco and the school district came after her for back taxes <laughs> on the transmission business i'm not surprised yeah she um
1: she in she ended up ruining that business you know this guy had worked his lifetime to establish a business and maintain it and she ruined it, put a bunch of people out of work, and ruined the reputation of the whole deal. And, and didn't care. All she wanted was money and
0: drugs. Did she ever see you again during the trial or anything? You ever hear uh, what she had thought of you?
1: No, I uh, I watched just a little bit of the trial. Didn't want to interfere. But she sat in there and just played the role as a victim, like so many do. But I never ran into her again. I suppose if she gets out someday. Uh, and she wants to visit, I'll I probably decline. But uh yeah, no, she's still in prison and uh
0: well at the time we're doing this interview, she's seventy six. This interview is in uh February of twenty twenty two and her she'll be eligible for parole in three years from uh four years from now. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't parole her because she will be eighty and the state won't want her on their Books for the for the health care that they'll have to give her. I'm betting she'll get out. I hope not. But if she does, uh, you know, she'll have little to come back to, I would suppose. Mm-hmm. Do you think he saw it coming at all? Had any hint? Or was he such a tough guy you would just never imagine it? Yeah, you would think after the first murder attempt where he confronts the guy and
1: so forth that he would have started thinking a little more about things, but... No, I think he was a tough guy, he wasn't afraid of anything or anybody, and didn't suspect that she would do it. Yeah. She would be
0: the one to do it. And that was investigated as a burglary. Right. Any lessons out of this for men? <laughs> <laughs> well, you
1: and I have talked about spouses that murder, you know, one another. And what is often the case is they never saw it coming. In other words, in these rare cases where a murder results, so often the person puts themselves in jeopardy over and over again with someone that ultimately kills them because they don't want to believe or don't suspect it would ever happen to them.
0: Well, you know, there is a television show that focuses on cases of women who murder their partners, and it spreads the belief that people just snap Talk about that from your prosecutorial experience. I don't think I ever covered a case in which somebody just snapped. It had been cooking and there was their personal right issues and everything else. I'm sure
1: there are things that happen where someone comes to their own defense and ends up killing someone, you know, that, that happens right. quickly. But in terms of a calculated murder or a murder of this nature, premeditated, premeditated. she planned this and tried to do this over and over and over and there was no snapping. There was, there was determination. Yeah. Was the only trait she showed. She's the little engine that. <laughs> that's right, the little engine that could until she did.
0: Yeah. All right, that's the last word on the Joyce Sturdivant case, and Joyce is out there doing time in the Texas prison system, and uh, it sure tells you that it's hard to make up a consistent story to explain away murder. Keeping quiet
1: may have been the best for her, I'm glad she didn't. I'm glad she talked to me and answered my questions. It up, convict her.
0: We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization, based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.